Oftentimes, when we discuss U.S. Marshals in regards to the Old West, what we're really talking about are deputies, men hired by the Marshal Service to enforce the law, or more accurately, to support the federal courts. Currently, there are 94 U.S. Marshals, one for every federal judicial district with nearly 4,000 deputies working under them. And it's been that way ever since 1789 when Congress passed the Judiciary Act. Of course, back then, there were only 13 districts, so just 13 marshals, and far, far less deputies. Wyatt Earp, Bill Tillman, Bass Reeves, Bat Masterson, the fictional Rooster Cogburn, and our current star du jour, Frank Canton, were not United States Marshals. They were deputy U.S. Marshals. It's sort of like the difference between being a sheriff and a deputy sheriff, just on a larger scale. Where I live in my judicial district, we have one U.S. Marshal in an area that covers like 42 counties. Also, sheriffs are elected, whereas marshals are appointed by the president and then approved by the U.S. Senate. Now, the one piece of profanity I tend to shy away from on this podcast is the word politics. Ugh, just sounds kind of filthy, doesn't it? You know where the word originates from, right? Poly being the ancient Greek word for many and ticks, a blood-sucking insect. Nevertheless, both the positions of sheriff and U.S. marshal are greatly affected by politics. Like I said, sheriffs are locally elected and generally run for office on either a Democrat or Republican ticket. For example, chances are if you live in a county that has Republican representatives, your sheriff also ran as a Republican and vice versa. With U.S. marshals, it's different as they are not elected but appointed. This means that with a new commander-in-chief comes the possibility of new marshals. Not always, though. Uh, In my district, we had one U.S. Marshal appointed by Obama that served a couple of years into Trump's term before being replaced. His successor, a Trump appointee, is still serving now under President Biden. So it all depends, but ultimately it hinges on the President of the United States. I bring all this up because, one, we're always talking about the various branches of law enforcement here on the Wild West Extravaganza. Sheriffs, sheriff's deputies, town marshals, U.S. deputy marshals, etc., I only recently learned that marshals were presidentially appointed, and I thought I'd pass the info on to you. And two, our subject, Frank Canton, spent a good deal of his life working as a deputy U.S. marshal. As such, his career was at times greatly affected by shifts in power at the very highest levels. Case in point, when we left off on the last episode, Frank had just fled Wyoming following the hostilities of the Johnson County War. Thanks to friends in high places, he took a job in Nebraska as a superintendent of a meatpacking plant while his lingering legal issues were being resolved. At the same time, the territory of Alaska was being redesignated as a district, meaning it would have a presidentially appointed governor as opposed to being under military rule. This also meant that Alaska would be needing a marshal to oversee enforcing the federal courts. So once again, Frank Ken began calling in favors. Remember, he didn't spend all them years cozying up to his betters and doing the bidding of the rich and powerful just for shits and giggles. Hell, Frank even traveled all the way to Washington, D.C. personally to plead his case, but no dice. Then President Grover Cleveland already had somebody in mind for the position, and that was that. Best Canton's old WSGA cronies could arrange was for him to take the much less prestigious post of Alaska's Deputy Collector of Customs, which Frank politely declined. Now, Canton would, in due course, find his way up to the Great White North, and we will discuss that later on in this episode. We're also going to partially take a look at his explosive return to Johnson County, where you're not going to believe what happened. But for now, a new opportunity beckoned, this one down Indian Territory way. 
Seems an old friend of Frank Cannon's had got himself appointed as sheriff in a brand new county, and he needed a few good men to come lend him a hand. Only problem was, Oklahoma is mighty close to Texas, and despite serving as a lawman for the past decade, Canton was still a wanted fugitive in the Lone Star State. Alright, enough with the preamble. This, by the way, is the fourth installment in the series on Frank Canton. Link in the show notes for the previous three. With all that out of the way, let's just get right down to it. My name's Josh, and you're listening to the Wild West Extravaganza. Frank Cannon's buddy down in Oklahoma, the new sheriff, was a guy named Frank Lake. And if that name sounds familiar, well, then you've been paying attention. Lake was the guy who, way back when, rode into Jacksboro with Canton on the fateful day that Frank got into that fight with them Buffalo soldiers. It was Lake who helped Canton ride out of town under a hell of bullets. It was Lake who took a round to the leg when the soldiers pursued the pair, and it was on Lake's horse that Frank escaped, leaving his wounded partner behind. And despite this less-than-chivalrous act, the two had kept in touch and maintained their friendship over the years. Hell, Lake was one of the few people who knew Canton's real identity. Now, Frank Lake had no real experience as a lawman to speak of, and that's where Canton came in, taking the position of undersheriff in the spring of 1894 after his failed bid for the job up in Alaska. Both he and Lake were also sworn in as deputy U.S. Marshals, which permitted them to chase after bad guys beyond the confines of the newly designated Q County. Yes, Q County. And no, we ain't talking about QAnon. This is present-day Pawnee County, Oklahoma, just northwest of Tulsa. The Pawnee tribe, at least some of them, were relocated there in the 1870s, and in 1891, they agreed to take land allotments with the remainder of the land being open to non-native settlers. This area, collectively known as the Cherokee Outlet, was then divided up into O, L, K, P, Q, M, and N counties. A few years later, the residents voted to change the name to Pawnee County, which, for the sake of simplicity, is what I will refer to it as. And that's your little Oklahoma history lesson of the day. Sorry it's not more riveting, but hey, we are talking about Oklahoma, alright? There's only so much I can do. And yeah, I did say that Sheriff Lake was appointed, not elected, on account of Oklahoma not yet being a state. Now this would be a dangerous assignment for Canton, as the area was literally infested with outlaws real outlaws as opposed to the so-called rustlers of Johnson County. This is where the Dalton gang was based out of, or at least it was until their fateful day in Coffeeville. And their remnants, the Doolin Dalton gang, actually held up the bank right there in the town of Pawnee a little over a year prior to Canton showing up. Hell, things got so bad that the county commissioners even called upon the governor to enact martial law. So needless to say, Frank Canton had his work cut out for him. And you better believe he hit the ground running doing what he did best in chasing down horse thieves and bandits of all varieties. Less than a month after Canton arrived, a local paper, the Pawnee Times Democrat, had this to say. Who caused the horse and cattle stealing to stop? Frank Lake. Who is it that stopped the chicken stealing, housebreaking and pilfering at night? Frank Lake. Who caused the merchants and farmers to sleep sound at night, from Ingalls to the Creek Line? Frank Lake. Who causes the honest people to smile and the thieves to tremble at the sound of his name? Frank Lake. Now, considering that Lake had zero experience wearing a badge prior to his appointment as sheriff, I think it's safe to say that it was Canton who was really getting all these results. I gotta also assume that he did not have the same issues in getting convictions as he had up there in Johnson County. He was, finally, at long last, going after real criminals. 
and the courts over in Fort Smith, Arkansas didn't exactly balk at handing down stiff sentences. Only one problem, though. Indian Territory is mighty close to Texas, and one thing Canton could never forget was the fact that he was a wanted fugitive right across that Red River. Only a matter of time before someone from his past recognizes him or finds out his true identity, and then what? It wouldn't take much for a group of rangers to trot on up there and haul Frank's ass back to the Huntsville State Pen. Also, Canton was beginning to wonder if maybe his little secret hadn't been discovered by those in high office. Perhaps that's why he didn't receive that marshal's appointment in Alaska that he so coveted. Either way, if he ever wanted to stop looking over his shoulder and, you know, do something more with his life than just being an undersheriff, Frank would have to make a move. And as fate would have it, his freedom and his future now rested on the good graces of a hog. James Stephen Hogg, to be exact. The 20th governor of the great state of Texas and the only man able to grant Frank Canton, a.k.a. Joe Horner, a pardon. Fun fact. Governor Hogg had a daughter with the unfortunate first name of Ima. Ima Hogg. Hapless handle aside, Ima enjoyed quite the successful life as a philanthropist, mental health advocate, and art collector. And despite rumors to the contrary, she did not have a sister named Yura. Now there are two different accounts as to how Canton obtained his pardon. The first goes that Frank returned to Texas and placed himself at the mercy of a Judge William Buford Plemons, who knew Frank back in his outlaw days. In turn, Judge Plemons went to Governor Hogg, who demanded to see Frank in the flesh, refusing to pardon someone without so much as an in-person meeting. Now, this was a risky gamble for Frank, as there were no guarantees. Depending on how Hogg's day was going, he could have simply had Ken thrown back in prison on a whim. As a means of insurance, Frank shoved a revolver in his boot, claiming that if there was an attempt to send him back to the penitentiary, then Texas would need a new governor come morning. Turns out no arsenal was needed, and Hogg readily agreed to a pardon, especially after taking Canton's law enforcement career into consideration. The other version is that Frank received some help from another old friend, Burke Burnett. You may remember him as being the cowboy whom Canton accompanied up the trail for the first time when he was still a teenager. In the intervening years, Burnett had done very well for himself and was now a successful rancher with plenty of powerful friends. Word is that Burke invited Governor Hogg to his ranch for a coyote hunt and that Canton acted as the governor's guide, without Hogg knowing his true identity, of course. During the hunt, Frank made one hell of an impression, as he always seemed to do when getting buddy-buddy with the rich and powerful, and Hogg extended him an invitation to the governor's mansion in Austin. Imagine Hogg's surprise when Frank showed up shortly after the hunt. Coincidentally, at the same time, the governor was scheduled to meet with the wanted fugitive, Joe Horner. Hogg greeted Frank warmly, obviously happy to see him, but asked if he wouldn't mind waiting a moment as he had an important meeting he had to attend. Canton then smiled and explained to Hogg that he was the appointment. Whichever way it happened, Canton was ultimately granted a full pardon. He would end up handing over a thick sheaf of documents, all showing what a fine, upstanding citizen he had been for the past few years, as well as a 2,000-word written plea. Worth noting that Frank would take a few liberties here claiming that he was years younger than he really was when he robbed that bank over in Comanche, trying to act as if it was just a youthful indiscretion and that his only role was holding the horses. As for robbing that stagecoach, he said he was starving at the time, and he only took enough money to get clear of the state and start over anew. He also failed to mention any of his legal problems up there in Wyoming. You know, the accusations of him murdering folks in cold blood or leading a mercenary lynch mob and attacking innocent civilians. And it worked. Like I said, full pardon. No longer would Frank have to worry about being arrested, at least not for any of his past crimes as Joe Horner. 
He would continue to live under the name Frank Canton, and he would most definitely return to Pawnee County with a renewed fervor when it came to pursuing ne'er-do-wells. A little bit too much of a fervor, in fact. Canton would be accused more than once as being a little overzealous. Likewise, in his role as undersheriff, he began clashing with U.S. deputy marshals working out of Fort Smith, disputes mostly caused by them arguing over prisoners. One encounter even had Canton arresting a couple of deputies and tossing them in jail. It was also during this time that Cannon shot a man in the head. He went looking to serve a warrant on somebody believed to be holed up in a Pawnee livery stable. This assumption proved correct and Cannon quickly and without incident cuffed the man in question. Everything was going good until the owner of the livery showed up, a guy by the name of Alonzo McCool. And I'm not making that name up. Now Frank and Alonzo just flat out did not like each other. And Cannon had long suspected McCool of passing stolen horses through his stables. Story goes that on this particular evening, Alonzo was rather inebriated and began verbally tearing into Canton, escalating matters further by reaching out and open palm slapping the lawman in the face. Now Frank, when apprehending his prisoner, had taken a seat on a stool and removed his revolver. Upon getting pimp slapped, Canton would immediately pull out a 41 caliber Derringer that he had in his pocket and shoot McCool square in the forehead, dropping him where he stood. Hard to find fault here. Uh... <laughs> I'm not condoning the shooting of anybody, much less an unarmed man, but talk about provocation. You know, as a guy, I'm not sure there's more of a blatant insult than getting slapped in the face by another man. It's hard to let that pass. Believe it or not, though, Alonzo would survive. The bullet is simply glanced around under the man's skin without penetrating the skull. He'd remain unconscious for about 12 hours, but make a mostly full recovery. Now, this Derringer story, Frank would admit later in life. At the time of the shooting, however, he told authorities that he was attempting to club McCool over the head with the gun when it accidentally went off. The same excuse, by the way, that another Pawnee lawman would use about a month later after shooting somebody in the leg. At any rate, Canton was cleared of all wrongdoing and threw the ineffectual Derringer away in disgust. Now, Frank would end up serving as both undersheriff and deputy U.S. Marshal in the Pawnee area for a little over five years. It was he who took down the dangerous Shelley brothers over in the Creek Nation, using the same tactic employed against Nate Champion. The bandit brothers were holed up in a cabin, and after a long standoff, Canton smoked them out using a blazing wagon loaded with hay and a few gallons of oil. As soon as the cabin began burning, the brothers ran out with their hands raised. Coincidentally, it was one of these men, Lou Shelley, who provided the infamous Cherokee Bill with a smuggled pistol that he used to kill a guard during an unsuccessful jailbreak over in Fort Smith. In June of 1894, Frank went after career criminal and cattle thief Ben Cravens. Locating the outlaw holdup in the Osage Hills, Canton and a posse waited patiently, but nobody emerged. Finally tired of waiting, Canton walked up and knocked on the cabin door. A woman answered but refused to open up, so Frank kicked the door in, knocking it off its hinges. Inside was Cravens, pistol in hand, but he was so surprised that he surrendered. Perhaps you've seen the movie Cattle Annie and Little Britches, starring Diane Lane, Amanda Plummer, and Burt Lancaster. This 1981 film was based on the very real female bandits and associates of the Doolin gang, Jenny Stevenson and Anna McDoolit, a.k.a. Little Britches and Cattle Annie. Well, it was not Frank Cannon who initially apprehended these ladies, but when Little Britches escaped captivity over there in Pawnee, it was on Cannon's horse that she fled. The next day, Frank, along with a few other deputies, tracked Little Britches down to a farmhouse where she was hiding with Cattle Annie. The She-Devils put up a fight and traded a few bullets with the lawmen, but soon ran out of steam and gave up. And then you have Frank Ken's biggest nemesis during this period, 
The Dunn brothers. Oh, boy. There were five of them. Bill or B. Dunn, John, George, Alfred, who went by Calvin, and Charles, who went by Dal. And they, like the ladies we just discussed, were also aligned with the Doolin Gang, a.k.a. the less famous Wild Bunch. Now, I could do an entire series on this gang, and I probably will. From the original Dalton crew, who were absolutely decimated during the failed bank robbery in Coffeyville, Kansas back in 1892, to the formation of the Doolin Gang and how it morphed into the Doolin-Dalton Gang with surviving Dalton brother, Bill Dalton. If you're a member of the Wild West Extravaganza Patreon, go ahead and listen to the old episode I did on Dynamite Dick Clifton, another member of this outfit, and somebody who would, at one point, be arrested by Frank Kenton. And of course, you also had Doolin gang member George Bitter Creek Newcomb, who just so happened to be dating the sister of the Dunn brothers, historical hottie, Rose Dunn, a.k.a. Rose of the Cimarron. That historical hottie comment does need an asterisk, by the way. There's a widely distributed picture purported to be Rose Dunn, and I gotta admit, she's kinda cute. Well, shout out to listener RPG, who recently brought to my attention that that's probably not her in the photo. And according to Michael Rudder's bedside book of bad girls, Outlaw Women of the Old West, the photo is allegedly a prisoner who posed to illustrate a story on the real Rose of the Cimarron. However, according to a 2021 article on True West Magazine, written by Robert G. McCubbin, when you compare that picture to a verified photo of Rose Dunn when she was in her 70s, it's a match. But y'all be knowing how I feel about photo comparison studies, so who knows. Anyway, Rose Dunn's brothers were more than a little shady. Like I said, they were associates of the Doolin Bunch, but they also kept one leg in the legitimate world by operating a boarding house in Ingalls and a meat market in Pawnee. And Frank Cannon fucking hated them, saying that they were, quote, the worst, end quote. (laughs) Yeah, he actually said that. They were the worst. He also said they were vicious, bloodthirsty, very cunning, and the worst men who ever infested Oklahoma, or for that matter, any other country. Okay, so what the hell did these Dunn brothers do to gain Canton's ire, other than being criminals? Well, in my opinion, it's all because they made him look bad. Frank had actually built himself up a case against the brothers and approached them offering a deal. He wouldn't arrest them or charge them with anything, so long as they turned snitch on the Doolin gang. You know, you help me catch these guys and I'll pretend like I don't know about all this other stuff you've been doing. And the Dunn brothers agreed. Kind of. Turns out they were playing both sides. They'd feed Ken a little bit of information here and there, but they also let the Doolin boys know when Frank was about. More than once, they had Ken out in the bush hiding, sometimes for weeks at a time, doing nothing more but twiddling his thumbs as the Doolins failed to materialize. And then, to add insult to injury, the Dunn brothers went to work for Bill Tillman and Heck Thomas, two members of the famed Three Guardsmen helping them to track down the Doolin Bunch. And it was under Thomas and Tillman that the Duns gunned down Bitter Creek Newcomb and Charlie Pierce, thus depriving Frank Cannon of all that reward money. Frank felt like it was he who should have been the one to do Pierce and Newcomb in, especially considering the amount of time he spent in the field looking for him. And this jealousy would only continue to grow when, in August of 1896, B. Dunn led Heck Thomas to the hideout of Bill Doolin. Now, Doolin had been arrested by Bill Tillman about a month and a half prior, but he escaped. Once done and Heck Thomas caught up to the Desperado, that was all she wrote. Bill Doolin was cut down with a shotgun blast and the Dalton Doolin gang was, for all intents and purposes, no more. Not only would this cause a simmering resentment between Frank Cannon and the three guardsmen, but his hatred for the Dunn brothers was really ramped up at this point. 
Had it not been for them jerking his chain for the better part of a year and then turning around and helping out Heck and Tillman, it would have been Canton raking in all that reward money. Or at least ways, that's how Frank felt. And it all came to a head on November 6, 1896. Bill Dunn rode into Pawnee, seemingly unconcerned about Canton's rage, and for good reason. Dunn now wore his very own Deputy U.S. Marshal badge, making him Frank's equal as far as authority was concerned. Sadly, he'd soon be laying in the street with Frank Canton standing over him with a smoking revolver. As usual, accounts differ. Even Frank had a couple of different versions of what had happened. He claimed that he and Bill came face to face on the streets of Pawnee and that Dunn cursed him and went for his gun. Per Canton's memoirs, quote, He had his hand on his revolver but had not yet drawn it. When I glanced at his face, I saw murder in his eyes and I knew he intended to kill me. I drew my revolver instantly and fired. The bullet struck him almost square in the forehead. As he dropped, he pulled his revolver, which fell on the sidewalk near his body. As he lay on his back dying, he was working the trigger finger on his right hand. End quote. Contradicting his own words, years later, Frank would say that he and Bill Dunn did not speak with each other at all, that they just locked eyes before Dunn went for his pistol, only to have it get snagged up in his clothes. This gave Frank enough time to drill B straight through the head. He would also claim that Dunn was wearing a breastplate made out of a steel plow, forcing him to go for a headshot, so grain of salt. For what it's worth, the Dunn family would maintain that B was taken by surprise, that Frank hid next to the meat market there in Pawnee, and when Dunn walked by, Ken slipped up behind him, called out his name, and shot him just above the brim of his hat as he turned. So there you go. Frank's version does seem a bit suspect, especially the parts about the steel plate and the twitching trigger finger. But there were supposedly witnesses. Another lawman, Charles Colkard, backed up the story about B's pistol getting hung up in either his suspenders or belt, as well as saying that he had never seen anybody die as hard as Dunn did, saying that he would shove out first with one leg and then the other, grit his teeth so hard you could hear it from 30 feet away, and at the same time he would work the trigger finger on his right hand. But don't just take my word for it. Let's go ahead and take a quick potty break while we hear what this episode's sponsor has to say about Frank Cannon and Bill Dunn. Welcome back. Not gonna lie, I'm kind of disappointed that none of the sponsors had anything to say about Frank killing B. Dunn. But I guess that's just life in the big city. As tends to be the case, Frank Cannon would not be charged with any wrongdoing here and he would continue to persecute the remaining Dunn brothers, some of whom were still riding for Heck Thomas as posse members. Ken even sent word to Thomas to deliver the brothers to him, a request that Heck 100% ignored. At one point, hearing that Heck Thomas was camped on the Arkansas River, some 16 miles east of Pawnee, Frank assembled a posse of his own and rode out to meet him. The two groups would play a bit of hide-and-seek for several days, but ultimately nothing came of the affair. Goes without saying that there was no love lost between Heck Thomas and Canton. By the late 1890s, however, Frank's time in Pawnee County was coming to an end. For a while there, he had been mostly focusing on federal work as he teamed up with another deputy named Steve Burke. The two men even had their own special letterhead and an office above the Pawnee Courthouse. At the same time, Ken's friendship with Sheriff Frank Lake was turning sour, especially when the two men got to drinking. Remember, like I said earlier, these guys go all the way back to Texas in the 1870s. And when the liquor began flowing, old bitter feelings came bubbling to the surface. Namely, Frank's guilty conscience about leaving Lake behind as he made a getaway on his wounded friend's horse. Evidently, even 20 years later, despite Frank Lake recruiting Canton for the job of undersheriff, this was still a bit of a sore spot. Story goes that the two men would often quarrel when drunk, 
and at least on one occasion, things nearly turned deadly. The two men had their guns drawn on each other as Cannon attempted to set Lake's beard on fire, with Lake goading him on before the pair were finally separated. Now back on the first episode in this series, I did tease the idea that Frank would struggle with the drink for years to come. This is something I noticed when researching Canton, and there are a few occasions you'll hear about coming up where it really cost him. Like the time he almost lost his foot in the summer of 1895 as he was drunkenly transporting some prisoners. In fact, Frank was so inebriated on this occasion that he fell off the wagon, no pun intended, and his right foot got caught up in the brake and twisted his ankle around. Luckily for him, the prisoners were able to jump out and get Canton loose, and it turned out to be just a severe ankle sprain. But things could have been much worse. As it were, Frank had to endure a very embarrassing ride to Pawnee as the prisoners he was escorting drove him back. Nevertheless, when sober, Canton not only worked well with Sheriff Frank Lake, but he evidently was also one hell of a deputy U.S. Marshal. Matter of fact, when the Marshal Service began making budget cuts and there were a series of layoffs, Frank consistently made the cut and kept his job. But like I said, his time in Oklahoma was coming to an end, partly due once again to politics. When Republican William McKinley became the 25th president of the United States, this meant not only a new attorney general, but also a new governor for Oklahoma. And without wasting too much time and going into too much detail, due to some previous election tampering, there was a clerk sent from the new district attorney's office to investigate the marshal service there in Oklahoma. It seems that certain deputies were being accused of misappropriating funds one of whom was our own Frank Canton. And these weren't just empty accusations, as Frank would himself admit to padding the accounts. Stuff like charging for mileage that he didn't actually travel, and meals for prisoners that were never fed, and posse members that Canton did not really hire. As such, by June of 1897, Frank M. Canton was fired from his job as Deputy U.S. Marshal. His boss, Patrick Nagel, had tried to protect him, even going so far as to stall his termination, but to no avail. Nagel would write, quote, I allowed him to remain on the force for the reason that he had always been a good officer for more than 20 years, was always called upon when any dangerous work had to be done. Outside of what he admitted in his statement, his work had always been first class so far as I know. He had at one time drank to excess, but about six months ago he stopped entirely, and I felt like helping him all I could, end quote. Nonetheless, Canton was out, and he didn't take the news all that well. The investigator that brought the charges against him, a T.C. Taylor, had to start traveling with armed guards after Frank threatened his life. And once again, Alaska beckoned. Now pushing 50, Canton knew that he was running out of time to make his mark on the world. And realistically, how much longer could he spend countless hours in the saddle, riding all over rough territory chasing down bad guys? That said, his ambitions regarding Alaska were no longer as grandiose as they had been in the past. He would now settle for a job as a mere deputy up there in the new frontier, as opposed to the marshal appointment he yearned for all them years prior. He pulled some strings. Hell, he had been pulling strings even really before the investigation into his spending habits. Guess Frank saw the writing on the wall before the election. P.B. Ware, Frank's old employer at the meatpacking plant, had an interest in the North American Transportation and Trade Company, also known as the NAT&T, working out of Alaska. And what's more, Ware knew the U.S. Marshal stationed in Sitka, Alaska. From there, things moved very quickly. Frank was officially dismissed as deputy in Oklahoma on July 27, 1897. By July 30th, just three days later, he bid his wife Annie and daughter Ruby goodbye and hopped on a train bound for the Northwest. His job as deputy U.S. Marshal in Alaska was not yet official, but in the meantime, he was to be on the NAT&T payroll. Plus, there was always the chance he'd strike it rich, right? 
I mean, at this point, the Alaskan gold rush was in full swing. Much like the 49ers a few decades before, many a hopeful was rushing up north looking to find that color. Frank would leave Seattle on a steamer, and following a two-day stopover at Dutch Harbor, he arrived at the town of St. Michael on the Alaskan mainland. Once a U.S. military post, St. Michael became a major gateway to the Alaskan interior during the gold rush days. Currently boasting a population of less than 500, most of whom are indigenous or Yupik, the town would have been booming in 1897 when Frank arrived. It's there that Canton and some friends loaded up on supplies and secured their passage up the Yukon River to the interior where they'd winter at Rampart City. And this is the real Alaska. I'll put it to you like this. When I type in St. Michael, Alaska and Rampart, Alaska on Google Maps, there are no directions. Even now, you can't even drive from one city to the other. I'm assuming like in many places in Alaska, you'd have to fly in. Canton did not have that luxury. This was nearly a 400-mile trip as the crow flies, but Frank didn't have wings, just a small steamboat and a couple of Eskimo guides. Now, Frank's original destination was Circle City, and then ultimately Dawson City, up in Canada's Yukon Territory. Unfortunately for him, the Yukon River began to freeze, so he and his buddies were forced to winter there in Rampart, about 160 miles northwest of present-day Fairbanks, which at the time did not yet exist. Upon arrival, Canton had him a nice little snug 14 by 18 cabin constructed, complete with a Yukon stove that he had wisely purchased, and he busied himself acquiring mining claims. He also tried not to freeze his nuts off, as evidenced by a letter he sent to his family that winter, writing, quote, The evenings are awfully long here. I put in so many lonesome hours sitting in my cabin in the dim light, thinking of home. Oftentimes I masturbate for hours on end. Sometimes without even a clear goal in mind, I just tug and tug and tug, as it's my only comfort in this godless frozen wasteland. And no, Frank did not uh, really say that. Although, let's be real, there's not a whole hell of a lot to do in Alaska during the wintertime, right? I'm sure he spent a little bit of time warming up that snowman of his. But my stupidity aside, what he really wrote in the letter to his wife and daughter was, quote, If I ever get home, I think I will appreciate it and be satisfied to remain there for the rest of my days. I frankly admit that if I had known the conditions here and the hardships one has to endure, I would not have come. If I had a friend who wanted to come, I would say decidedly, do not come for mining purposes at any rate. End quote. According to the internet, the average temperature in December there in Rampart varies between 3 degrees and 7 below, Fahrenheit. For all of my non-American friends, that's like negative 16 to negative 22 Celsius. And those are averages. I believe the low record I saw was 50 below zero. There's also just three and a half hours of daylight per day in Rampart in the month of December. So yeah, no shit, Frank was miserable. You know, when I was younger, I spent a lot of time thinking about Alaska. Read a lot of books about it. Books like The Final Frontiersman by Hemo Korth. I watched a lot of documentaries. I read all about Dick Pronecki. I felt like Alaska was the perfect place for somebody like myself. You know, someone that can't really fit in. There's plenty of land and plenty of solitude. A man can live his life there without somebody breathing down his neck or watching his every move. Free of traffic and pollution and sirens. But you got to be tough enough to endure the conditions, including the extreme temperatures. And I don't know what's happened to me in the last few years, but I just cannot take the cold anymore. I got too much Texas in my bones, I guess. Plus, I love Mexican food too much. And aside from caribou tacos, I don't think you can get much good Mexican food up in Alaska. So when I finally do make my retreat from society and spend the rest of my days as a hermit recluse, I'm thinking maybe the desert, you know, New Mexico, Arizona, somewhere warm but not as humid as where I currently live, and with the option of driving to a higher altitude if I want to cool my heels. 
By the way, that little cabin that Canton spent the winter in there in Rampart would be rented out the following year to none other than Wyatt and Josephine Earp. They, too, had been on the way to Dawson when the river froze, forcing them to spend the frigid months in Rampart. This, of course, was before Wyatt went on over to Nome and opened up the Dexter Saloon. As far as Frank goes, he would nearly lose his life that first winter when he and a few other Arctic tenderfeet, affectionately known as Chichacos, tried to make their way overland to a gold strike some 25 miles away. It began raining, the rain turned to snow, and suffice it to say, the men never made it to their destination. And when they returned back to Rampart, they were one man short. According to Frank, it was one of the hardest trips he had ever made in his life, saying that he had never suffered so much with cold and hunger, and that it took him a week to get the soreness out of his limbs. Finally, Ken did receive official word that he was now a deputy U.S. Marshal, and he received his first assignment. There was a steamboat stuck at the mouth of the Koyukuk River, about 100 miles south of Rampart, and the passengers disembarked and made a crude tent city known as Suckerville, where they'd spend the winter. A number of these passengers were hard cases, and they soon forced one of the merchants on board to sell them all of his wares at marked down Seattle prices. Shortly thereafter, a tough named Tom Barkley and his gang just flat out seized the steamboat and claimed the remaining cargo as their own. And what happened next, I think, is what made Frank Canton such an effective lawman. He may not have been the most upright guy as far as morals went. He might have been too much of a kiss-ass to those in power for my tastes. And he may not have been very good at questioning orders or contemplating the hypocritical nature of what he was doing. But the guy just did not seem to know the meaning of the word fear. Frank arrived in Suckerville alone and boarded the stolen steamboat. The troublemaker Tom Barkley, who everybody else was so scared of, asked Frank who the hell he was, and Frank answered by shucking out his revolver and lying at Barclay and two of his men up against a wall. Said he was Frank Canton, Deputy U.S. Marshal of Alaska, and that he had a strong desire to murder all three men right there on the spot. The only thing stopping him was the ground being too froze to dig their graves. As it were, the next morning, Canton raised an American flag over the steamboat and declared that the law had arrived in Suckerville. He would stay there for the remainder of the winter, and with the ice breakup, Alaskan tradition made Frank an official sourdough, a badge of honor in those days meaning that you had survived your first harsh winter in the Alaskan interior. Also, sourdough bread was a big staple among Alaskan gold miners, in case you're wondering where that expression came from. As we recently saw, when Frank made his way to the gold diggings, he took an all-water route from Seattle to St. Michael and then eastward via the Yukon River. A lot of other people, however, would choose the Skagway route, especially during the Klondike Rush. That would take them through parts of Canada's British Columbia and the Yukon District. And as they did so, the Royal Canadian Mounted Police would refuse to let anybody cross into Alaska unless they had a year's worth of provisions to live off of. If they saw that you had a 50-pound sack of flour in a sourdough pot, boom, you were all good. That was considered ample enough food. I'm no baker, but I guess the idea is that you can make sourdough bread with just flour, water, and a starter. And it did not require eggs or milk. Now, believe it or not, at this point in time, Frank Cannon was the only federal lawman in all of the interior of Alaska. And as such, he stayed pretty busy. That summer, he would escort about a million dollars worth of gold down the Yukon River for the NAT&T. And he was also sworn in as a deputy for the town of Circle, Alaska, about 100 or so miles south of Fort Yukon. And somewhere along the line, Canton became a mason. I think probably this happened either in Wyoming or Oklahoma, but he would preside over a couple of Masonic funerals up there in Alaska. And that's just one conspiracy that has never really picked my curiosity, the Masons. 
I just sort of see them as a fraternal order of dudes, you know, just dudes hanging out, totally not doing gay stuff. But do they control the world? Uh, I doubt it, especially judging by the Masons I've known. Now, Frank may have been the only law dog in the territory, and he may have been engaged in what he called a quote unquote man's job. But he did have some help, oftentimes deputizing others, hiring native guides and working closely with the Canadian Northwest Mounted Police. He had adapted well to Alaska and would often travel several hundred miles by dog sled through extremely dangerous territory, arrest warrants in hand, and return with his quarry. His main problem was a financial one. Just like nowadays, the price of goods up in Alaska had a ridiculous markup, and Frank struggled with even being able to feed or board his prisoners. Even hiring guards proved to be nearly impossible with Canton's meager allowance. As such, there was many a time when Frank would have to go into his own pocket or even take out loans just to perform his job as a deputy in an adequate manner. And it all came crashing down in 1899 when, according to Frank, he contracted snow blindness in his second winter and had to return to the lower 48 for treatment, a set of circumstances that prompted Canton to resign from his position of deputy marshal. While Frank did indeed suffer from his eyes being overexposed to the bright sun reflecting off the snow, the truth is that his past troubles in Oklahoma had finally caught up with him. All that missing money, and he got fired. And not only did he get sacked, but he would now be barred from ever again working for the Marshal Service. Now, in Frank's defense, I'm thinking what he did wasn't as devious as it was made out to be. Did Frank Canton pad the books? Yes. But this was partly due to necessity. Take the mileage that he was allowed to charge, for example. Well, that was only based on optimal travel conditions, not actual miles on horseback. Let's say a deputy had to go many miles out of his way to a swollen river or what have you. This was mileage he could not get paid for. Telling a few white lies to get compensated was a common practice among Canton and his fellow deputies, and some condoned by their immediate supervisors. At the end of the day, right or wrong, this was a political witch hunt by an overzealous attorney general working for that new administration. And Frank was the one who ended up paying the price. Now, in Canton's absence, his wife and daughter had been staying with friends up in Buffalo, Wyoming, where they were treated with kindness and respect. Although the citizens of Johnson County still maintained a hatred for Frank Canton, his family was off limits. Civilians, if you will. Plus, Frank's brother-in-law was a highly respected saddle maker in the area. But Canton? Well, let's just say, time healed zero wounds as far as Frank and the populace of Johnson County, Wyoming were concerned. He still had a lot of enemies in the area, and when word began circulating that Frank was returning to fetch his family, they began making moves to even up the score. Remember John Tisdell? The man Cannon was accused of dry gulching all them years prior? Well, John had him a little boy before he was killed named Martin, and that little boy was now 12 years old. Not quite a man, but certainly big enough to hold a revolver and work a trigger. And he was holding one, fully loaded, on the day Frank arrived in Buffalo. Young Martin was to gun Canton down as soon as he stepped off the stagecoach, and just in case something went wrong, there were two armed men hiding in the shadows ready to finish the job if need be. Would they be successful? Was this the end of the line for Frank Canton? And if not, what the hell was he going to do if he could no longer work as a deputy U.S. Marshal? How's a manhunter earn a living without a badge? And why didn't I make any vampire claims on this episode? Did I finally grow up and realize it wasn't funny, or did I just forget? Join me next week and find out. The next episode will be the last installment in the Frank Canton series, by the way, and possibly the last episode of the year. I am working on a little short episode that I know you're going to like. It's just a matter of if I'll be able to post it before we ring in the new year. I'm optimistic. 
Thank you so much for listening. I really, really mean that. Uh, Spotify just released their yearly wrapped statistics, and it's surreal seeing the Wild West extravaganza on so many top five lists. Matter of fact, this podcast was a top five podcast for over 4,000 listeners with a 332% increase in streams. And that's just on Spotify. So thank you, thank you, thank you. As always, you can email me at josh at wildwestextra.com. And you can sign up for my 100% free newsletter by going to wildwestjosh.substack.com. Or you can just email me and let me know that you want it. All right, so there you go. Frank Canton finale next Wednesday. Till then, try not to get frostbit or let the snow blind you. Don't go patting the books or pistol whipping no livery stable owner with a derringer. And whatever you do, do not trust a hog under any circumstances. Frank just got lucky. Adios. tug and tug and tug.